welcome to Overcoming, the podcast to support you in your healing, growth, and overcoming journey. My name is Taylor, I am your host, and I'm here to support you through tools, resources, and also shared lived experiences to inspire you to take back your life regardless of life's messiness. I am also a doctor of occupational therapy, certified trauma professional, and survivor who's been healing for years to remind you that anything is possible. Before we get started, I want to remind you that there is a trigger warning present throughout this entire podcast just due to the heavy nature of trauma and also shared stories from our guests. Additionally, this is for educational purposes only. Make sure that you are checking out and going to see your medical providers and psychology professionals for individualized advice. Again, take care of yourself. If you need crisis resources, they are on my website. You can also contact the emergency services. And now that all of that is out of the way, I invite you to take some deep breaths, ground yourself, and join me in this overcoming journey. Welcome back to Overcoming the Podcast. My name is Taylor. Again, I am your host. I am a doctor of occupational therapy, a certified trauma professional, and also a trauma survivor of childhood trauma for about 10 years. So today I am here to share a little bit about my own overcoming journey and what brought me to this space with you. One thing that you will recognize is we'll have a lot of different guests in this podcast and they'll be sharing their journeys and I'm sure I'll reflect on things with them, but I wanted to give you a foundation of who I am, what I do and why I'm here because how else are we going to get to know each other, right? So there's so many things in my own history and in my own story that I can go into, but I'm honestly just going to let go, share with where I'm led and just not re-record things because One of the things for me is that I am a recovering perfectionist and this stemmed from living in a household that was narcissistic. Um, My biological father was very abusive and um, physically, emotionally, like psychologically manipulating. um, And I lost sense of reality. I had no sense of self-worth. And for me, it was very challenging navigating the world as my authentic self. In fact, I didn't even know who that was. It was what everyone else told me I was. And that's how I found my identity. And that's no way to live. And I was even scared of myself. I was told that I was the problem. I was told that I was the one who was mentally unstable, that I couldn't be trusted around people. Just, I was delusional, like so many things that kept me ashamed to be who I was. And so anything that felt outside of the normal, anything that wasn't praised, anything that wasn't accepted, especially by my family, I hid. And I, I put on this mask to the world and I called myself for a long time, like this chameleon that I would even have different friend groups. And I was smart enough. I realized to this day, it takes the emotional intelligence to be able to do this, but I would morph myself into Like take those pieces of me that I needed to be to fit in somewhere, to have what I would call survival friends, to feel connected. Even though it wasn't really true connection, it was based on what I thought they would want me to be. And so I would show up like that. And it was very lonely and isolating. And one of my biggest fears growing up were birthday parties because I would have different friend groups and I was different people 
to all of them. So I would get such anxiety that I would be seen as a fraud and everyone would dislike me when they come together. And I have to somehow be all of these things that they needed me to be at once without losing any of my friends. So growing up, I cycled through friend groups pretty quickly. I also was easily triggered. Like I said, I grew up in a narcissistic household. So I was the oldest. Um, and I had to have two little brothers. Um, my youngest is about six years younger than me, 98, 95, six years younger than me. Um, he is my pride and joy. I just, he is the reason for everything I do. I call him my North star. Um, he had a stroke. He was a happy, healthy baby. And he had a stroke when I was about five years old and it changed the trajectory of my life because automatically I became this caregiver and I don't, no one really told me to, but somehow instinctively, I knew that that's what I needed to do so that he would be safe and nurtured. Like I just took on that role. Now I look back now and I know subconsciously, I recognize that my biological father was not a safe person. And so I stepped up to be that other parent for my brother. So my entire identity, as much as I loved him, as much as I love him, my entire identity was on being a caregiver and I was essentially just a parent at a very young age. So I've always been told that I'm an old soul. I've been told that, you know, I'm so well behaved and I always connected with adults so well and not so well with kids, which looking back now is a trauma response, um, which I'm sure we'll get into later in these episodes. But, you know, I just, I was that different kid and I would cancel play dates to take care of my brother. I would, you know, it was just for me, it was a true joy. And like I said, I love him to death, but I internalized such a role to take care of him and protect him. And my other brother who is closer in age, so he's about three and a half years apart. And then those two are about a year and a half apart. Um, so he and I always had a little bit of a disconnect. And as we got older and started recognizing more of the abuse he started becoming, he was brainwashed by my biological father at a very young age that I was the problem and that my mom was the problem. So essentially what happened is there was this triangulation for us kids against each other. So there was me and my mom on one side against my dad and my middle brother. And then the one who has special needs, um, he just kind of ended up in the middle and, um, So there was a lot of conflict and tension between me and my middle brother. And, you know, a lot of it, again, was passed on from tension with our parents. My parents, I never saw them get along. Um, I couldn't tell you what healthy love was. I only ever saw them screaming or rolling their eyes or ignoring each other. Like I never can remember a time where they were happy or even notice them smiling at each other. It's not to say it didn't happen. It's to say, I don't remember it. So, you know, I mean, that's just the way that your brain processes things, right? So you can imagine what that kind of impact has on a child. So, um, right around the time that I was 15, it was my sophomore year of college, right around my finals, just before Christmas. And I had finally just a few months earlier, woken up to the abuse that was happening in my house. I was very stuck in this fawn response. Um, like I said, I was the protector, right? So I would physically 
step in the middle between my dad and anyone else. I would take the blame for everything. I would make sure that anything that happened came down on me because when my biological father was upset, he would get physically abusive, emotionally, just completely degrading. And whether I was safe or not, or my brothers were safe or not depended on his mood. So again, I took on a lot of that protector role. And I think that's a lot of what instilled this perfectionism in me was that in order to get any kind of attention, especially safety, I had to be perfect. I couldn't make a mistake. I couldn't be too loud. I couldn't be too emotional. So I just found myself suppressing all of these things about me. And it wasn't until later, only a few years ago, really, that I recognized that my biological father is an overt narcissist. And I was terrified to say something like that for years because, you know, I would find myself as a kid just sobbing as a teenager when I started waking up to the abuse that, you know, everyone else, there was someone like when things happen with parents or with people, there's an excuse, right? Like you can pinpoint like, oh, they have this mental health condition. Oh, they were drinking, whatever. And I used to just cry and I was just beg like, why? There's no excuse. I do not see an excuse. I can't, I don't get it. I wish there was something so I could at least blame something and understand. And again, later in life when I understood trauma and then I started understanding like empaths, which I'm an empath, um, always that one who was shining that bright light, just like unapologetically myself from a young age. And then was just slowly made to be small and dim that light and be in control of this narcissistic household. So that controlled a lot for me. And there are a lot of memories, like, especially as a teenager, when I started waking up to the abuse and challenging my biological father, there was a point on my finals, my sophomore year where I was home. I think early on a half day, I don't remember if I was sick or if I was just home on a half day from finals. And there was a knock at the door. My dad picked it up and it was tickets to go to a football game. And if I remember correctly, it was the Super Bowl, but it was some kind of important game that would be a lot of money. Okay. And so I was sitting there on the couch and my dad gets the stuff and he looks over at me and he goes, you know what that is? And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, that's my move out money. And I was like, huh? And then he told me about this elaborate plan he had to secretly divorce my mom behind her back, take everything he wanted while she was gone on this six week business trip out of state. And this was already set in stone. She was already like set to go. And the trick was I wasn't allowed to tell my mom anything. So just think about that, that as a teenager, this person who's telling you this, they they're your abuser. Okay. Like he's been physically and emotionally abusing me for years and is trying to tell me and control me yet again and say, but you can't tell the one that you've been always been on their side, always on their team. You can't say anything to her or I'll kill you. I'll ruin your life. I'll, you know, whatever. So long story short with that, Christmas was rough because we were fighting and there was a lot of tension there. And I'm like, I'm going to tell her. And he's like, no, don't you dare. And eventually it was this heavy burden put on me. Right. And I literally, I swear this, he was going to kill me. I'm, I'm very convinced. And I was like, you know what? She needs to know right after Christmas, I ended up telling my mom. And in that moment, my dad told me that I ruined his life. I ruined his plan. And he was going to make my life a living hell. That was his goal. His only goal in life was to make my life a living hell. And he tried. 
And, you know, it started with after my mom did end up going, my mom left and went to Oklahoma, lost her custodial rights for anything that was happening with me because she was out of state. And that's when the manipulation really began. Um, first of all, my biological father was cheating on my mom with the youth pastor of our church. There's a lot of religious trauma there. Um, the most abusive person that I can think of was the biggest churchgoer and all about Christ saves and we forgive. And so pushing that on me um, at an early age and kind of forcing us to go to church. And again, when my mom's out of state, my dad is cheating on my mom with the youth pastor of our church, not just like the youth pastor, who again was a trusted person to me. And now I see as essentially like a villain in my story, right? And I just remember this repressed rage and this inner voice that had literally been suppressed for so long that finally came out during that time. I started challenging him. Um, My biggest accomplishment to this day was that he hit me and I jumped on his back, grabbed his hair. He's like a six foot four big man, grabbed him by the top of his hair and pulled him down to the ground, kicked him in the stomach and ran away. Then I ran to my friend's house and she called the cops (laughs) and I'll get into that in a minute with the cops. But for me, taking the power back over my abuser who had tortured me for years was my biggest accomplishment. Now, during this time also was the only time that the police had ever been called to this day. I mean, because again, I was threatened to lose my best friend everything. And they would kill me. My dad had a Glock in his bedroom that he threatened to use before. And so he had me scared into silence. And so this platform survivors overcoming silence is really a testament to that overcoming journey. And again, it starts with just silence and talking about things, but with this platform, I recognize that overcoming is so much more And we're just consistently overcoming and healing and growing from obstacles in our life. As humans, whether or not you have the trauma background I do, we all have experienced something that we have to heal and grow from. And it's consistent. So hence overcoming. So side note, bringing you right back in. Sorry, my brain. I'm also convinced I have ADHD-like symptoms, the executive dysfunction and like the disorganization sometimes that is definitely stemmed from trauma and like the damage over the years. I do not have a diagnosis, but if I kind of skip around, that, that's kind of what hap- is happening. So sorry in advance, but I'm going to try and keep it on. Like I said, I'm not going to edit this. So um, yeah. Okay. So then that happened. And there were a lot of instances that I can remember. The cops were eventually called and this I'm, I'm very feisty and strong-willed once I fight back, (laughs) let me just tell you, I am the nicest person until I hit that limit. And then when I hit that limit, watch out. Okay. And this, even this isn't just for everyone. This was literally just my abuser. Okay. This is how determined I was. So my dad was talking on the phone when my mom was gone to the lady he's cheating on my mom with. Right. And I was just in rage, in rage. And I'm looking back, I'm like, should I have been as upset as I was? But to my, when I recall everything again, I was always like protecting my mom. I was on my mom's side for everything. So to me, this is the deepest, deepest betrayal ever. And it was almost, I was acting on behalf of my mom. She never told me to, but again, it was just this like internalized sense that I needed to take responsibility for this and protect everyone. 
looking back, I recognized that I tried to protect everyone because I couldn't protect myself. So it was like an overcorrection and also a trauma response, but you know, so I was determined and I sat there for hours. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was like three hours just outside his door saying, I'm not going to go to bed. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm not going to go to bed until you hang up with her over and over and over. Like (laughs) to this day, I was like, dang girl, dang girl. Um, but earlier that day he had thrown, he was a DJ. So he had boxes of CDs and he was carrying something. And I said something snarky again, challenging him because I'm not tolerating the abuse anymore. And he threw the whole box of CDs into me and like slammed me into a wall. So that was one thing that happened that day. Another thing that happened that day was I was, I was said something or something. I was nearby the refrigerator. And right as I closed it, he, he, no, he slammed the door on the refrigerator. Then he grabbed me by uh, my forearms, pinned my arms like a goalpost with my back against the refrigerator and rammed his forehead into my forehead as hard as he could while he was gritting his teeth and threatening me. And those are the two main things that I can remember. I know other things happened that day, but again, this is, these are just the types of things that happened in my life on a regular basis and the type of abuse that I dealt with. And, um, and then acted like I was the reason and literally told me, you made me do that. Nothing I ever did what could have made that happen. But again, I was so convinced that I was the problem and I didn't care anymore. So I said later that night, I kept, you know, I would break into his room with the locks. I was like, nope, not doing it again. Challenging completely like in this fight mode, I was done for years. I was silenced by this person. I was taking the breath of everything. I was done. He ended up calling some kind of hotline. Basically my teen is out of control and mentally unstable hotline. And they talked to me and they asked what was going on. And they asked me to recap the night. So I did. And they told me that I needed to act like everything was fine act like I got in trouble and give him back the phone, go to sleep and go to school the next day and tell the cops everything I just told them. And I was like, uh, okay. Again, at this point, nothing has been reported about abuse. This is all silenced. I was a straight A student. I, you know, again, I was the chameleons. I was liked by everyone. I was probably teacher's pet, like trying to get attention that way. Like no one really knew what was happening. And so I did, I, I acted like everything was fine. I listened to the people on the phone. Thank goodness. Cause who would have known what would happen to me physically if I didn't. And, um, so I did, I went to bed, went to school the next day, called the, or went to the front office, talked to the cops because of where I was located. I had to talk to two different police officers. I explained what happened in regards to the headbutt, like literally what it was. Um, and the first officer said, oh yeah, that's a headbutt like from the first jurisdiction. And then the next one came and said, oh, that's not a headbutt. And so they said, I changed my story and I wasn't a reliable source. And so they didn't do anything about it. Well, there was still weeks into what was happening. My mom was going to be gone. And, um, my friends, I would like, there was a one day that I didn't show up to school and I think I was sick. I either was sick or I skipped on purpose. And I don't remember. Um, And again, up until this point, I had been a goody good. And my friends kind of knew what was going on at this point. Like after I told the cops at school, people knew. Okay. Um, But again, if the cops didn't do anything, who's going to do anything about it? Right. So um, there was a welfare check called on me when I didn't show up. Um, And I remember, you know, the two cops came to the door. They asked me how I was, what I was doing. um, And if, you know, if any adults were home or whatever. And I remember my biological father was so angry. 
that I had done that. That how dare I be telling people? And I got hit even more that night. And I got even more physically abused and emotionally just completely berated. And um, it got to the point where I just started challenging him. I just didn't care anymore. All it was like, I'm going to call the cops as much as I can. It doesn't even matter. I'm like, I, he literally, one time he hit me with a textbook. He just took multiple textbooks and he just whacked me. I was like laying down with my legs up. And, um, I said something snarky about him cheating on my mom and he just took the textbooks and he like whacked me repeatedly on, repeatedly on my knees. I fought back, got up, ran next door, next door, called the cops next door was one of my childhood friends. And, um, basically the story just kept being, well, my biological father was also a pathological liar and said that, you know, I was a hormonal teenager trying to prime proof for the divorce. And you can't really believe anything I say. And, you know, if I were to hit her, you know, I give her a spanking here and then, but that's not abuse. And if I were, I'd be the first to say it again, knows just enough to twist the truth and walk that line to where it's enough of an issue where they wouldn't actually take me away. So I was consistently put back in this environment. And this is where most of the damage and the trauma comes from. A lot of my trauma responses and a lot of my hypervigilance, because in that time, literally I only person that was controlling me was a narcissist who would tell me I could do things and then take it back. Um, another thing that he would do, um, for instance, one of my friends invited me over for a sleepover and he told me I could go shockingly. I was like, oh my gosh, really? He was like, yeah. And I was just trying to get out of the house begging. It was so abusive. I was so unsafe. I was miserable. Um, he stopped paying the utility bills. Like there was like, our power was off at one point. Um, because he refused to pay it. My mom refused to pay it. They were having wars, but like, we didn't have power. And you know, I, I did. So I went to my friend's house and then, um, he called me after I got there, maybe like an hour or so after I got there. And he's like, where are you? And I was like, I met my friends. What do you mean? You told me I could go. He goes, no, I didn't. I don't know your friend. What are you talking about? And then just played the whole, the dumb thing. He goes, well, you need to come home right away. I'm going to call you in as in, in the national runaway database. And so here I am freaking out again, this goody, good straight A student. And he knows too, that like the number one thing I wanted to do was become an occupational therapist, which I am because of my brother. And, um, you know, so I wanted to be that since I was 12 years old. So that was his leverage over me. Well, I'm going to call the cops. You can't be an OT. If the cops get called on you, it'll be on your record forever. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know where you are. You're telling me, oops, can't hear you. Sorry. Hang up the phone. And so, you know, I would lose friends that way. And so he threatened custodial interference to press charges against the other parent who he originally said I could go see. And then, you know, she's like, I'm sorry, sweetie. I have to send you back. I'm so sorry. I wish there was something I can do. And I just remember that conversation as being so mortified. And, you know, so I, I didn't really keep friends well back then because my biological father was manipulative and not okay. And, and so it was just a really, really hard period in my life, but I did start fighting back. And because I started fighting back for myself, I definitely endured more physical abuse. Also around this time, um, my brother started becoming more stressed and more upset and more against me. And so my brother and I would fight a lot more. So again, my mom eventually came back and it was my brother and my dad against me and my mom and my special needs brother was just kind of in the middle and wherever he ended up. So it was a really long, messy divorce. Again, my parents hated each other, um, you know, and my mom to deal with everything from what I can remember in my childhood just kind of tuned out. 
kind of zoned out. Um, she was the doer. She kept the house going. She was the one who worked. My dad was on disability for some stuff. He was self-employed, but didn't really do much. My mom would cook. My mom would do the yard work. My mom would do absolutely everything. Take us everywhere, all that stuff. But then as far as emotional connection, it wasn't there. She did not really connect with us. She didn't really connect with anyone. She kind of was just shut down, which I don't blame her, but that pattern continued into our adulthood. And so I never felt emotionally connected to her. And we just, I didn't have that support. Um, and it was really hard for me because as a kid who was growing up in abuse and who is just looking for safety and comfort, looking to the other person and they're just turning their head the other way on purpose. It's like, okay, well, that's not really helping your child, right? Again, you're taking care of yourself. And she probably was like total in shutdown mode. I get it. But for me, it was really traumatic and really hard. And, um, even to this day, like I haven't had contact with my biological father in seven years, but the things that he would say to me every day, I was worthless. I was fat. I was ugly. I mean, just so many things. I looked pregnant. No guy is ever going to love me. And if they did, and some guy was going to marry me, then he would find them on my wedding day and come and tell them how crazy I am and get them out of it and save them. They were going to blow up my career, even, you know, threatened to do that when I was in OT school. And, you know, I had to go to my OT school and there had to be security had to be involved. Like, and just has not let go of the fact to this day that I ruined his life. Okay. And there were other things that happened. Um, I say biological father, there's stuff there that I'm not going to get into. I am very supportive of all people inclusive. However, to me, this story, I say biological father. Okay. This is what it is to me. That's what I'm saying there. Anyways. Um, so now as an adult, I later in life. So first of all, the, the family in between, oh my, okay. The family I had like a fake family essentially. Okay. And it was my mom's best friend from high school, her family. Her mom was another one who was working all the time, who was gone a lot um, from what she's told me. And so she kind of was like raised also by this. It's like a second family to her. And they had been around since I was born. Okay. So I considered them family. There was no biological relation. However, that's just kind of what happened. And, um, so whenever there were issues with my mom's side of the family or issues with my dad's side of the family, because they both had their own problems. And again, as a young adult and teenager, I recognized this and it was really weighing on me. And I would go to this family because they saw the dysfunction in both and could validate me and give me that love and support that I was looking for. Okay. Well, there was, um, a male who was married into this family and he was in the military and I saw him as like a second father figure. Well, shortly after he came back from being away from a stay in the military, um, he was staying at a trailer park and, um, long story short, I hadn't seen him in a while. I was so excited to see him. It was like right after father's day. And I literally called him like basically saying like, happy father's day. You're like a father to me. I appreciate it. And, um, I was at a campsite with my friend like a few minutes away ish, probably like a 20, 30 minute drive away, um, with her on vacation. And then one night I went to see him long story short. Um, I was sexually assaulted that night, not something I would have ever seen coming. My body shut down. Um, I, I can't even begin to describe what I felt, um, pure shock. 
I remember that, you know, and what had happened, I won't go into details because I know that's triggering, but I remember at one point I got away into the other room and I slammed the door shut. Like it was like one of the slider doors so like to get away from the bed. And I was laying on the couch and I remember saying, cause I was, I didn't know anyone. I was on vacation in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night in a trailer park. And, um, I remember in my head, like, okay, if he comes out that door, I'm just going to run and I'm going to scream and I'm going to get help somehow. I don't know how to do this, but I have to get out of here. And that the rest of the night, he did not come out once I finally got away and I hit him. I, you know, I did everything I could to fight back to get away, but there had already been a lot of things that had happened that night as far as sexual assault. And, um, so the next morning he wakes up and acts like nothing happened. Like he was just going to drive me back to, um, my friend's campsite until we were driving. And he said, I'm going to take a different way. I was like, okay. And, um, terrified of him. Right. Again, in this fawn mode, cause that's what I've learned to protect myself. I'm like, <laughs> um, and he decides to go along this back dirt pathway that essentially was just a dirt road one way. And on one side was a cliff and on the other side was just a little bit of clearance. And so we're driving and, um, he all of a sudden turns to me and just goes, <laughs> and just starts talking about last night, just casually, not saying anything about it. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? Um, and you know, we did karaoke earlier that night. So I was just like, oh, cause you're a bad singer. Ha 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 ha. And then he started saying things about how I liked it and I'm so dirty and whatever. And I was just sitting there disgusted and I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. Like again, just terrified. And then all of a sudden he started to veer the car towards the cliff. He was like, you know, it'd be really stupid to say anything. Right. And essentially just told me that I'd be smart to keep my mouth shut. And, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Ha ha ha. And he was just like, good. And then veered the car back. He was so calm and cool and collected in that moment. And I knew that he had done it before and probably would do it again. And so I was just, again, still in complete shock, still just trying to protect myself and had about a three hour ride home with my friend and just in shock the whole way there. And, um, you know, I eventually decided to report it, um, that evening when I got back and I went to the hospital, I did all of like the reporting stuff. Um, I, you know, swabs picture, all the things, the interviews, the multiple interviews, again, still in shock, remembering things as, you know, they were taking pictures or, you know, how memories pop up from trauma. And, um, yeah, it just, I, became disowned by that family. And the person who I trusted the most in that family told me that I was hurting her family. How dare I? And I need to drop charges. And at this point, it wasn't even me who was in charge of pressing charges. It was the department county, I believe. Um, and so I was going through with the trial and I was prepping for the trial and I had severe PTSD. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Um, I, every time I would close my eyes, I would see him and I would panic. Like I, I couldn't go anywhere alone. I thought that I would be viciously attacked again. Logically, it didn't make any sense, but like my whole body would shut down where I would like curl up in a ball and hyperventilate. There was one time that happened when I was in a grocery store. Um, I couldn't even get gas alone. And so I just lost control of my body. And what happened, 
I also started hallucinating during this time. And I saw, so like I said, my two primary abusers were like father figures to me. Okay. They're both over six foot tall and men. And so I would see people in public that were like that around that description, like bigger guys. And I would see, I would hallucinate and see one abuser's face and then it would transform into the other one. And I, it felt like reality. I was absolutely terrified. And, um, you know, I was going through counseling at the time and essentially they originally diagnosed me with acute stress disorder. And then later went through the DSM and said, you have PTSD once it hit the criteria for it being long enough. Um, I went through the trial and, you know, we were prepping for that. And originally they told me that it was going to be 15 to 20 years for life. Cause I had a recorded confession. I had to do a confrontation call where I talked to him after the fact. Um, and that was recorded by a detective and he confessed and, um, you know, all of that stuff that I had to do and long story short there, I found the brokenness of the justice system and there was a change in judges. They started saying that the charges weren't valid and there was no proof and blah, blah, blah. And, um, even with a recorded confession, jail time started to go down from like 15 to 20 to life to maybe seven years if we're lucky. Um, found out the new judge was very pro-military because my judge originally had gotten promoted. Lucky me. Um, and so this guy was just basically known to let sexual abusers get away and very pro-military, which my that person was to me. Um, and like I said, had just gotten out of the military. So it was that whole thing. And so I had to decide, um, what to do. And I was essentially bullied into a settlement. I was hallucinating so much to the point where, and dissociating that if I were to even think of the trial, I was going specifically to a therapy session to prep for the trial. And even thinking about what might happen, I dissociated so much that I woke up 20 minutes later while I was driving, I dissociated while I was driving, no idea where I was came back to consciousness, started panicking, pulled the car over heavy sobbing. Like I, I, I called my mom. I was freaking out. I didn't know what was happening to the point. I, I couldn't do it. I physically could not go through with the trial. So I asked the people that I were working with, like the victim's advocate and everything. And I said, is there a way for me to share my testimony to the jury and the judge and him be in another room? Like I cannot, the thought of seeing him, I, I can't do it. And um, I don't remember which person on the legal team said this, but they said that he has every right to look me in the eyes as I'm sharing the testimony and, um, shivers to this day. Still, if you're watching on YouTube, you probably saw just how uncomfortable that makes me. They said, Oh, you can hold a therapy dog. Um, yeah. So it, it just, it did not, did not work for me. I eventually ended up taking the settlement and the settlement got lower and lower and lower. So he would get less and less time and eventually got down to no jail time. Um, but my one thing that I would not budge on is he absolutely had to be registered on the sex offenders registration list because the whole reason I was reporting it is because he had a daughter who was my age and he had a daughter who was younger and who, you know, and again, how he confronted me afterwards was so calculating and not okay that I knew that he was a predator and would easily do it again. Just the control he had over people and, um, emotionless control, like complete psychopath. But anyways, so 
I ended up signing that he was put on probation and on the national sex offenders registration list. Got a call a couple years later that the paperwork was misfiled, quote unquote, um, and that I needed to, nothing happened. He's basically free. It's like, I never reported it. Cool. Um, and that, you know, for my victim's advocate and, um, that I would have to write a petition to the judge to try and reopen the trial and do it again. And so at this point I had already healed and been through therapy and I felt more comfortable being able to restate things. And again, trauma, you know, details from trauma. If you've ever been through significant trauma, those specific details, sensory, everything, I could relive it to you. Like it was yesterday. It's that deeply ingrained and it's just not okay. Anyways. So I gained the courage and I said, okay, I'll do it. And I wrote this note to the judge. I said, you know, why I think he's a predator. And, um, they essentially told me that they don't see him as a predator because he knew me. He's not a threat to society and, um, they're not going to reopen the case. So he's walking around free right now. Like nothing happened. So everything I went through is like for nothing. So I am a big advocate for people taking their life back after trauma. So I, after I was assaulted, I went to OT school. Okay. And that's where I started to get my doctor of occupational therapy. And originally was just planning on working with kids. And I found in my first year, I went to a national conference and I found these presenters who were presenting on trauma and occupational therapy. And I had always wanted to work with survivors. Um, again, I like to save people, right? Like I was that protector. It's the role I was in my family growing up. And, um, that's just naturally like I'm an advocate and a helper. And I would use things that I had been through to help people. So hopefully what they've been through is not as severe as what I did. And, um, so I became very passionate about this and I ended up making it my independent study and it transitioned into creating my own doctoral research project around childhood trauma and understanding the brain. And in the research, when, you know, I was doing the research, I was triggered and there's so many things that came up, but I learned a lot about trauma. And in that, I learned that a lot of the things that I had experienced, a lot of my personality, a lot of all this stuff was a trauma response. And I recognized how dysfunctional my home was seriously dysfunctional and no one in my family would admit to the level that it was. So I started recognizing the way my brain reacted and all of those things. Oh my gosh, that's trauma. Oh my gosh. I'm not overdramatic. Oh my gosh. I'm not stupid. Oh my gosh. And so just learning about the science of trauma and the trauma responses and all of that stuff throughout my studies helped me to not only start healing my PTSD along with therapy, of course, but also the narrative that I was the problem, the narrative that I wasn't enough, the narrative that I was crazy. Okay. That had just been deeply ingrained from my biological father in the years of abuse. And so I got to the point where I felt very comfortable with what I was doing and I just wanted to share everything. And I came up with this idea on how to train survivors or how to train um, professionals who work with survivors. Cause again, I've seen how poorly people were treated in the education system with kids. I saw firsthand, even in the reporting process, there were so many awful things that were said to me. Someone told me, a nurse told me I was lucky uh, for reporting it. And at least anyways, so there were so many things that I found were not trauma sensitive and actually were re-traumatizing. And when I was in that process with the judges and, you know, the pre-trial stuff, 
I recognized why people do not report. I had family members go against me. I had people blame me. I, you know, I was told that I was lying. I was told that I was the problem. What was I wearing? All of that stuff. Um, and on top of that, I just was seen as an unreliable source. And, and then I was told from the defense that one of the thing or that I heard the defense was going to use a strategy against me saying all of the things that my biological father had has lied and said against me again, to manipulate control and, you know, narcissist, pathological liar, they were going to use against me as truth, as a defense as to why I'm not reliable. And so this person can get off scot-free in this trial and, um, uh, family, uh, the, who I considered family and trusted who used to protect me from that side of the family was now going to use that against me. Like I was the one who was lying and I was the one who was the problem so that their people could get off free. And at this point I had already changed my last name to kind of go along with theirs. So, um, it was, it was very, um, upsetting to say the least. And so, I was working on the relational issues and the losses and the sense of trust that I had lost in that. And so, you know, when I was rebuilding and healing, of course I did therapy, but I had to do a lot myself and I had to learn how to get back to just being functional again. And the more I learned in occupational therapy, as I was going to school, the more I learned how to adapt and modify things to help myself. And so I kind of became my own therapist in a way. Um, and I know there's a lot more on self-healing nowadays, but you know, I, I started diving into more things and I started recognizing, you know, my mentor was really passionate about mindfulness. And so we dive, we dove into, um, the research in mindfulness and trauma and what it can do for the brain. And so I started getting interested more holistic stuff. And then I started diving, you know, a couple years later, diving deeper into my spirituality, a part that had always been repressed from me, um, you know, and starting to reclaim myself in that way and seeing all of the practices in there that are mind body connection and that were really healing. And, you know, I found myself graduating, doing all this stuff, excited somehow, you know, like wanting to change the world, but also this deep, deep imposter syndrome, um, because the one thing from my childhood that stuck with me is that I was going to, I was too unstable to be an occupational therapist or do anything worth any merit in the world. Even though I'd been through so many triggers and I had worked through so much, that was one thing for me that I just couldn't shake. And it was a deep trigger. So when I started off in my career, wanting to do things differently, of course, people were against me. They're just like, like, who do you think you are trying to change the way things are done here? but I knew that I had something unique and powerful to provide that as a trauma survivor, I see what we're teaching and what needs to be done differently. And I also, as a professional saw the importance of trauma sensitive education and trauma sensitive care through everything that everyone does, because at baseline and the research that I was looking at people who are impacted by developmental trauma is one in four developmentally impacted by trauma is one in four adults. So how in the world can we not address trauma at baseline, healthcare, education, professionals, anything, parents for people to not understand it. And so I really, really, really wanted to find a way to bring everything that I had learned about the science and this research to people. And, um, essentially when I started off in my career, I just went the traditional route. Okay. I, I did a few presentations. I was told that basically just like pushed aside, like, yeah, right. Good luck with what you want to do. I had this big vision. I knew what I wanted to do again. There's no money in it. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, but I was determined. And so I found myself in these clinical jobs and then the pandemic hit. 
When the pandemic hit right at the beginning, March, 2020, I was laid off and I found myself relieved because it was a chance for me to go back towards my purpose. And that's when I started survivors overcoming silence. I created the platform and I was ready to start sharing. And at this point I had not shared my story publicly. People in my personal life had known, but I was so afraid of my professional life finding out and seeing me as incompetent as a professional because of all the things I'd been through. And so eventually I worked up the courage to share my story on a podcast, OT for life, which um, I think it's episode 62. If you want to look it up, it's still a really good podcast. It's the first one I ever did. And um, I really, really found a very positive response from people because not only did I share pieces of my story, but I also shared what I wish would have been different in my childhood, how I wish people would have treated me, the warning signs I wish people would have seen and what professionals need to do moving forward. And me being terrified of being exiled in the professional world was actually a very successful episode. I had so much positive feedback. And after that, I was triggered. I was completely triggered because I was coming up on an anniversary of the sexual assault. And at this point, I had been completely in denial that I ever would need to go back into therapy. I had been dismissed two times back around when the original divorce happened. And after I went back when I was originally assaulted and, um, because I wouldn't go any further with EMDR therapy because I was terrified of it and ran out of the room. So I was dismissed from therapy. I couldn't go any further. And that's just what they said. Well, I got to the point where my nervous system shut down so much from the triggers and, and like what it took from me and what it brought out to me to share my story publicly to professionals and, you know, have that out there. And then the anniversary of the sexual assault was coming back. And every month it happened in June, every June, my body starts to shut down. Right. I mean, it's like clockwork. I, and I can't control it. And sometimes I will even start sabotaging parts of my life, like picking fights with people or whatever to justify why I'm off because I didn't want it to be the trauma that years later, I did not want that person to have that much power over me. I'm pretty sure it was five years at that point. And still every month I would shut down, even though I'd made so much progress in my healing and I'd come so far and I felt somewhat normal. I shut down. And I just remember the day, it was the day before the anniversary and I was acting like it wasn't going to bother me. And I was really convinced it wouldn't. And then all of a sudden I numbed out and it was like the flattest affective face. I could barely had the energy to like, I didn't even have the attention span to watch TV. I couldn't focus on anything. I was just so zoned out. I had no emotion. I was just completely overloaded. And now I look back and I understand that was dorsal shutdown. So I decided to go back to therapy and I decided to go back to EMDR and I found a therapist and the first day she asked me, cause you know, in my typical fashion, me a year ago, if you would have known me then so anxious, um, you know, justifying every action, justifying my existence and, oh, I did this because of this and you know, like so anxious. 
so afraid that someone was going to misjudge me. So afraid that someone's going to misinterpret me. See that I was the problem, like just terrified. Okay. At the end of my first session, my therapist looked at me and she goes, have you ever been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder? And I was like, no. And she goes, okay. All right. Good to know. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, that would explain a lot. Um, and so from there I started EMDR, um, and when she gave me the diagnosis papers after, you know, we did a couple sessions and like, you know, all the prep stuff and the coping skills stuff. And then what they do is they send you the papers for you to sign off on it, at least at this place, um, for you to keep moving forward. And the diagnose code diagnosis code said post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, I shut down. I'd never seen it written out like that. For some reason, putting a label to me was just so terrifying and I, it just made me feel like something was wrong with me and I could never get better. And I, I just, again, took me back to that point that that person who assaulted me had that much power over me and it just, it hurt and my nervous system was triggered. I signed the papers and I sent it back and I came back in and I told her about it and she, you know, we worked through that. And then I started going through EMDR and different therapy and, you know, I'll go into EMDR and sure in another post on some point, but, um, you know, essentially you go back through the memories and reprocess things and look at things objectively and how much they impact you and what the negative cognition is and all that stuff. So what I thought was going to come up with a big trauma memories of my biological father and what I found were a lot more of the attachment wounds and a lot more of the attachment wounds actually came from my mother. And I recognized that as an adult, I had a really hard relationship with her because she still was not emotionally available to me. I was labeled as the unstable hormonal teenager as an adult. I was the problem. I had emotions. I was just like my biological father. And, you know, my family, my mom's side of the family, my mom and my brother are very different than me. They are very level-headed thinkers, not feelers, very reserved. And I am more of this big dynamic person. And, you know, I have emotions. I am louder. As you can tell, probably I'm like yelling into this mic and, you know, I just, I didn't really fit in. I didn't. And so I would show up as myself and I'd be criticized for that. And so I found that a lot of my self-worth, which was pretty non-existent at this point, actually came from the issues I was having and connecting and attachment with my mom. And, you know, I brought this up multiple times. I tried to work on it and I started recognizing more and more. And then my therapist brought up this term to me and she said, have you heard of what a covert narcissist is? And I was like, no. And so she explained it to me and I was like, oh my gosh, that is my mother. And that was when I recognized that I grew up in a complete narcissistic household, that I was not supported and that my emotional needs were not met, that I was the scapegoat whenever anything went wrong. My brother in the middle was the golden child and the special needs brother was really just taken care of because, I mean, he didn't, he functions at about a six-year-old level in his twenties. So he doesn't really have a lot of like say in the family dynamics. He's just kind of there, um, but he's very empathetic and receptive. And like I said, it's one of my favorite people in the world. Like I said, I call him my North star, but so the family dynamic was extremely dysfunctional. 
And even, and then there were enablers within the family. There are enablers on my biological father's side and my mother's side. And to this day, they are upset that I am doing this and upset that I'm saying any of this. I've had people call me in the family and say, they're deeply distressed that I'm sharing things. My mom told me, it sounds like I was locked in the closet as a kid and that she didn't do anything for me. When I told you, my mom took care of the whole household. She did, but the emotional connection wasn't there. She didn't have the availability, availability to do that for me. And even to this day, she doesn't, and she's still in this protective mode and she's still, she refuses therapy. Everyone else in my family refuses therapy. I'm the only person in my, in my entire family that I know of that has ever gone to therapy for anything has even admitted that something was wrong. Um, I recently found out that German, like we're I'm German and English, which I guess is like a awful combination as far as like trauma is concerned. Cause one is super business and the other is, um, we keep everything private. We don't talk about things. And if you do that, you're a threat to the family. And so I am the black sheep in the family. I am still seen as the crazy one, the emotionally unstable, the, you know, I'm, I'm airing family business that I shouldn't be publicly. And how dare I, and I'm, I'm over identifying as a survivor. Like it's my whole identity. And so, you know, I, I take this feedback and I hear that and I, I started sharing these things. And later on in my therapy, my therapist mentioned that I have complex trauma. And so I looked that up and then I found all of like all of the pieces of my life came together. I was like, oh my gosh, my personality is a trauma response. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I just started recognizing and in households where there's complex trauma, there are these unstable family dynamics. And typically there's also generational trauma. And I, as an adult, I started learning more things about both sides of my family and like different family members would tell me different things here and there. And I'd be like, whatever. And again, as a kid, you don't recognize these things, but there were scandals about people coming out as abusers and, you know, repressed things from childhood that people are coming out as predators. And, you know, one person is I'm noticing the guilt tripping and the gaslighting and the other person is just super overtly abusive. And I'm just like, oh. And so I woke up to that and I was with my partner at the time. And I just remember like telling him all of this. And like, he helped me really like see my childhood properly because, um, he was in my life when I was also a sophomore. So like we met each other when I was a sophomore. And like I said, the peak of the abuse happened my winter break as a sophomore year. So he was a good friend through all of this for me. And he saw firsthand some of the things that were happening, a lot of the things that I blocked out. So when I was with him, I was able to see my childhood differently, especially my teenage years. And it really helped me to reclaim myself and my identity and what actually happened because I had someone objective tell me what actually happened and working through these things in therapy and reprocessing thing and memory, memorizing or remembering things differently as I'm like reprocessing memories. And, um, So, you know, my partner is no longer my partner. We split for reasons, but I am grateful for that time because it did help me to figure out who I was. And so while I was in the relationship with him the entire time, I was going through deep EMDR and therapy and I was recognizing who I was and what I needed and what I wanted. And I started speaking up about things. And I recognized that that person did not like that. I was using my voice either and said that I was talking too much and communicating too much. And it could have been awesome, obviously an overcorrection. But there were some things that I would bring up small things and it was met with a defense and it was met with, you know, 
I was the problem, even though these things, you know, I was sharing just basic needs or boundaries that I needed in a relationship. And I recognized that they also had some sort of trauma and they weren't willing to go to therapy. And so I found myself attracting my entire life, the same kind of people. Some people were there who did like kind of support me and care for me and, you know, wanting to like, almost like save me because it seemed like they couldn't save themselves is the conclusion that I made. And others were terrified by the spark and the light and the truth that I had. And so they were trying to keep me small and silent. And I had to break out of all of that and reclaim myself and create my life to be what I wanted it to be. So there were some red flag things that happened with my partner. I told my partner we were living together. I told him we needed to leave. He moved out. We broke up and I started getting deeper into my spirituality. And I started going on this unconventional journey that led me to quitting my job that led me to creating this business and going all in that led me to coaching trauma survivors that led me to all of these deep core wound triggers coming up in this period of instability of, you know, I literally, I lost my house and it was just, I basically like asked the universe to remove anything that doesn't serve me. And I walked away from my job. I lost my house. I moved 2000 miles away with a friend taking care of me for a couple months while I launched my business to get financially stable again, taking a risk on my dreams that I was intuitively driven to do. And everyone thought I was really not making the right decision. And you could tell, and I did it anyways. And I realized everyone has their own journey and we all feel so isolated. And I didn't really start living until I woke up probably about three years ago. When I started recognizing that I was a walking trauma response, that was my personality, everything about me, the friendships that I made, like I just, it was trauma. That's, that's how I learned how to exist in the world. And that was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And so with all the work I did, I leaned into holistic wellness. And that is understanding yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And there's like others that, you know, like socially it's adapted from the seven aspects of wellness, um, which you should look into, but those are the four that I focus on and like social, emotional, I feel like kind of go together, like our relationships and our emotional inner being. And so as I started leaning into that in my own healing process and tapping into each of that and gaining control and understanding and awareness in each of those aspects in my life, I started recognizing the impact that it had on my healing with self-love and self-worth at the foundation. And then focusing on these four aspects of wellness, I discovered myself for the first time. I know who I am. I love who I am. I am comfortable being alone. I am comfortable making mistakes. I am comfortable with people disliking me or even saying bad things about me because I know my truth. I have healed so much 
that I, I am a different person. And all I want is for other people who were like me, who were stuck to be able to experience that. I can feel this like heaviness in my chest that I'm like trying to push back as I'm saying this because it, it is that powerful for me. Healing is constant. And as trauma survivors, we are told a lot of the time, especially in dysfunctional family dynamics, that we're the problem. And anyone who speaks up or who goes against the norm, how dare you? And we've seen in society when survivors speak up, they're blamed and shamed and just, we're the problem. And so perpetrators continue to go free. Abuse continues to cycle and no one is doing anything about it. And so that's why I'm here. Not only is this podcast here to support survivors in their own overcoming journey, to give them the tools and all of the things that we didn't learn in school, their family sure as heck aren't going to tell us because they're part of the problem. And to get us started on that journey. And I have met so many amazing, amazing people in this space and in this healing journey. And I am just so fired up that I can use absolutely all of my strengths, all of my lenses, everything I've learned, all of my experiences to share openly, honestly, what works, what doesn't work for me. And other people can do the same. They can share what works, what doesn't work. I have some ideas with the research. I have ideas on like seeing, trialing things professionally on how to connect with people. That's why I do coaching. That's why I come on here and I share things. Like I am here to freaking change the world. Mic drop. (laughs) Okay. That was me trying to compensate because that was a big statement, but I am. I want to change the world. I want to change the way that trauma is perceived, that survivors are recognized. I want survivors to understand that you can take the power back over your own life. That people who have controlled you and manipulated you and have made you feel small do not deserve to take your life away. That you can wake up right now and you can decide you're going to start living. You can decide that you're going to start healing. It's going to get harder. It's going to get messy. And there are going to be some things that you don't expect. I'm not going to lie to you. But I would not change it for the world because the reward of connecting with yourself, of knowing with yourself, God, of loving yourself is so worth it. And I come on strong and I come on big, especially on social media too, because I want this for all of you. It's not to say that I'm perfect. It's not to say that I'm healed. Again, I'll say this so many times that there is not a healed. There is not an endpoint. It is linear. The more things we find, the more we can do, the more we can grow. We are imperfect beings as by nature, and we can absolutely learn and grow and heal. Okay. That's just who we are. However, what we can do is start. There's not an end, but there is always a beginning. 
you showing up here and even listening is a beginning. You even thinking that you have worth, that there's something out there you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to separate yourself from these people. You want to find people that align with you. You want to live, you want to feel, you want to breathe. You want to just not be stuck in these constant survival responses. Maybe you don't even know their survival responses. You can take your life back. You can reclaim your life and yourself after trauma. It is possible. You are not alone. You are not the problem. The systems are broken. They just are. Family systems, educational, judicial, medical, they all are. And I'm sorry I'm saying it. But we can use our voices and use ourselves to inspire change in our lives. And if I am able to use my voice and what I have learned and what I have been through to even help change one life, then I have succeeded. I will say it until I can't say it anymore, that you are worth it. You deserve healing. You deserve love. You deserve to know and love yourself and trust yourself and show up as the authentic, incredible, unique you that you are. You deserve it. And I'm here to help you along the journey of growing, healing, and overcoming so you can reclaim your life and yourself no matter what you've been through. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. I hope you are as excited about this as I am. There's so many amazing guests coming up. And if you're someone who wants to share your story or you have something you want to share, reach out to me. I'm available on Instagram at SOS with Dr. Taylor, T-A-E-L-O-R. SurvivorsOvercomingSilence.com. And YouTube, I'll have linked as well. I want you to know how special you are. And I know that trauma makes us feel the complete opposite. But you're not a burden. You're beautiful and amazing and wonderful. And I hope you see it. And I hope you pick up things on this journey and overcoming. And it brightens your life. And maybe one day you'll be like me and you'll be sharing your light and your story to everyone about how you've been doing it and how it's transformed your life. Never thought that I would be in this spot. Always wanted to, always dreamed about it. Never thought I could actually do it. Here I am. The girl who was told that she was the problem, who was beat every single day, told how worthless she was and wouldn't amount to anything. No one would love her. No one should care about her. She's crazy. Didn't deserve, didn't deserve to exist. 
And yet I stand and I share and I am worth it. And you are too. So let's reclaim your life, shall we? Did you like what you heard? Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to share, like, comment, write a review. Connect with us deeper on Instagram at SOS with Dr. Taylor. And all services are on my website at survivorsovercomingsilence.com. I am just so thrilled and honored to hold this space with you all. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.